Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Politics. Insert punchline to political views you disagree with. Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Splitsville, the place to end the relationship, have dessert while you desert your lover at Splitsville. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. We are actors, and I've been a full-time filmmaker for the last, I don't know, 11 years or so. Um, Todd's a musician, a full-time producer for the last 50 years. Um, <laughs> longer than he's been alive, he's been producing. He's just <laughs> that talented. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, that's right. <laughs> and this show is all about looking at a film and figuring out what we can learn as people behind and in front of the camera, as well as uh, storytellers in general and just, you know, general review. Uh, the conversations can go anywhere. Like we always do a really good job, I think, of staying on topic. Um, even if, you know, we go astray, it's always tied back to the story, the theme filmmaking in general uh and so hopefully there's always something useful for creatives out there um i i do think it's funny sometimes where conversations go because last week i was editing the episode and i was just laughing to myself because a conversation that i thought would be a 30 second throwaway comment on my part ended up being like a 30 40 minute discussion um just about whatever the impact of film um and i just thought it was funny because it completely outlived or outsized my actual opinion on the topic because we were talking about uh, uh, a film about kidnapping. Um, and I thought it was interesting, you know, how films can really have an impact and build out our imaginations and our, and our worldview in subtle ways sometimes. Um, and so I just kind of threw it away as this, uh, like, man, I'm, I hope people, you know, don't watch this and clutch their pearls, which I, again, and I, I know we, you know, beat this into the ground last week, but I, I don't think people do. I think it's just what you see can begin to take on a life of its own. Like what you see can impact you in a way that's very subtle. Um, it's not like, you know, you walk away from any particular film, right? You, you don't walk away from John Wick thinking, we live in a world full of assassins and, and anyone could get me at any given time. You know, not at all. Like, uh, but that doesn't also mean that there aren't actually assassins that exist in the world. Uh, they're probably just mediocre at it. Uh, they're either really, really, really amazing at it or they're really bad and they're going to get caught, you know, very quickly. Uh, that's probably more the reality, but there's no, crazy hotels strung around the world or, you know, with whatever kind of secret society happening. And so I just find it interesting, not just where the conversation can go, but also, you know, the, the small minor ways that film can influence our thinking, um, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, today at some point. Uh, so, yeah, if you haven't seen the great dictator, 1940 uh, version, I don't know if there is a, version after that i don't know if you haven't seen it pause this episode go watch it it is streaming on hbo max um because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff yeah we'll look at some of the stuff uh definitely touch on some of the cinematography we'll talk about old aspect ratios uh, as well as look at a classic glow up that they gave for hannah um, and then touch on some of the story and writing the way they destroy something beautiful and other such stuff and things and stuff and a quick synopsis of the film dictator adenoid hinkle 
tries to exp- expand his empire while a poor Jewish barber tries to avoid persecution from Hinkle's regime. Written and directed by Charles Chaplin, cinematography by Carl Struss and Roland Tothero, featuring Charles Chaplin as Hinkle and the Barber, Paulette Goddard as Hannah, Jack Oakey as dictator Napoloni, uh, Reginald Gardner as Schultz, and Billy Gilbert as Herring. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, so, okay, let's, I'll start. So, I will say, I mean, I've never seen this film. Obviously, I've seen the speech, and uh, it's moving, and I had never seen it before, before, like, the internet kind of, like, right. did that whole mashup a couple of years ago, or not mashup, but, like, put this amazing music to it. And and I was just blown away, like, unbelievable that this was, you know, 80 years ago that that and it's still so pertinent today. <laughs> all the the machine references and the, the plane and uh, uh, reference and all that stuff. And uh, so just addressing just the speech before the film, I, I know that the few little things I know about this film, I know Charlie Chaplin made it. Uh, he put a lot of his own money on the line to make this film. And it was debated whether or not to keep that speech in at the end. Yeah. Wow. Because it's such a departure from the rest of the film. It's like, I debated because I was like, you know what? It's such, obviously it's, you know, become iconic in recent years because of the internet and, you know, the eye opening level of watching something being said before the U S was even entered into world war two. Um, and this was only shortly after it begun in the first place. He only invaded Poland uh, about a year before this was released. And Hitler, that is, um, not Charlie Chaplin right. did not invade Poland. <laughs> but the rest of the film, the drama is pretty light. It's all comedy, you know, with light flourishes of drama. And so I debated even using this as our starting clip uh, because of that reason. But it's just still so good. Um, but I had no idea that, mm. you know, like you're saying, that they were thinking about cutting it because of that reason. I mean, look, if you step back and you look at it from a point of view of making a movie, this does not fit. It's 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 a complete 180 from the rest of the movie. And I it it's in my opinion opinion that this three three minutes three and a half minutes whatever it is are the only reason he made this film yeah right like he wanted to say this but he's charlie chaplin who he's made his career on comedy on on physical comedy right like that's that's what he's known for right and i want to say this is the first or one of the first audio films he this did is right? his yeah, this was his first foray into the talkies. Okay. Um, okay. And he had made other films during the time of, you know, sound sync, but this was his first, like, you know what, I'm actually going to do a full talkie. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what a, what a way to start out of the, out of the gate to have that. I mean, okay. Let me, let me talk about the film for a second. So there are some things that I noticed that I, that I loved and some things that I just couldn't, you know, they were just difficult. Right. I, I think that, the stuff that was difficult, I'll say, is is just some of the on the nose attempt at humor. Like I hated when they bit into the mustard, that whole scene where they're throwing themselves around on the couch. And I I just I I hated it. It was awful. That being said, most of the of the comedy, I know you know, like I, I, I got by, like, it was like, oh, look, it's 1940. Like, yeah, I could see in 1940, this would have been funny and, and, and stuff. And some of the stuff was, was hilarious. I loved the upside down plane bit. I thought that was brilliant and wonderful, um, at the beginning. Yeah. So anyway, so some of the comedy was really difficult for me to get by that being said, all of the satire, all of the making fun of like, you know, 
the references to Mussolini, right? The uh, Napolini, Mussolini, mm-hmm. you know, all of like the, the, the swastika, the replacement for the swastika, right? Like with the pluses, um, but <laughs> they wrote, wore them on their arm. The, the, the ballet dance that, that Hinkle did with the, the globe is brilliant. You know, like all of these and, and the way he spoke quote unquote ver- uh, German, Right was on it like brilliant. I would challenge you to do that for a good minute, which is what he did in these speeches. Two minutes of just gibberish German sounding sounds. Right. Yes. In fact, uh, let's listen to one of these. Uh, his first uh, speech because it's just genius. Mm-hmm. He was ignorant of the profound change that had come over Tomania. Hinkle, the dictator, ruled the nation with an iron fist. Under the new emblem of the double cross, liberty was banished. Free speech was suppressed, and only the voice of Hinkle was heard. it's it's brilliant it's oh. absolute brilliance that it, like and it's so great that he like that's how he starts that like his his talkies right is he like he says i have had a lot to say and now i'm i'm gonna use this platform to say it in a funny way and then at the very end and in a in a way that's going to transcend time right like and and generations uh, I, I, it was pretty noticeable even back then. You, you've talked a, a lot on this podcast about the 180 rule. Mm. And I really saw that here. I mean, in every way, it was almost like, it was almost like a, a sitcom, right? It, from, from, you know, let's on the street, you know, we're, we're always looking this direction, same direction on the street, whether we're in a building or outside of a building, it's always this same direction. Even when they're on the roof of the building, we don't break the 180 rule. When they're looking at the barbershop burn, um, we're, you know, at an angle, but we never break the 180 rule. Like, I always feel like I'm looking in this specific direction. Now, you know, it's 1940, so, the, like, I don't think that they were trying to break that at all. I think they were purposefully staying that way. But yeah, I mean, if you want, I'll, I'll jump in real quick and just say, I, yes, I think it probably has as much or more to do with the camera itself because it's just this behemoth massive thing. And they're doing these nice dolly shots. Um, and so in order to really take advantage of, you know, camera movement at all, you're basically eating up half the room, um, with these huge, you know, arc lights, uh, that are lighting your set. Uh, and so there's just almost no practical way. I mean, there, there might be one scene that breaks the 180 rule, which is uh, when right before uh, they go to uh, this meeting, right? Uh, uh, Hinkle is waiting for Napoloni. And they're doing that whole conversation about, I figured out how to make you the man, right? He's going to sit in the, the seat and you're going to be looking down on them. Um, and that whole physical comedy killed me. But in the setup, we start that scene, I think behind Hinkle, and then we jump to the other side of the desk, but otherwise, like that that massive camera, and I'll put up a picture of a BTS shot 
of Chaplin looking through the the the, the camera lens because it's just it's a honker like that thing is a beast. I believe uh, it, yeah. uh, but I, I I think it played to the strength. To it was like a strong move. I, uh, yeah. Whether it was motivated or not, I think it it just speaks to us. It speaks to filmmaking in general and for human beings, right? You know, we need that frame of reference of what direction are we looking? Where are we? And they establish it really well, I guess, is the point I was just trying to make that mm -hmm. like, like, I felt that and it felt grounded. I felt, you know, like I was in this space and this is where I'm living and I wasn't going to be challenged. And that was okay, because I'm just trying to follow this story. I thought Hannah Paulette Goddard was, was wonderful in this film, just so just such a strong female character and uh, presence and really like bolstered the barber. I love that the barber didn't have a name. It really just gave a voice to the people, you know, especially with his speech at the end. He was the people mm. and how he was just a, because he didn't know about the invasion, Hinkle's invasion and, and everything because he was had amnesia. He just was fighting, you know, like. I don't like, how dare you do this? And he would like hit the guards and stuff. And, you know, so he wasn't scared at all. It was like, you know, it just, he was just fighting for himself. And, uh, and I, I love those little touches. I thought it was like really, really brilliant. There was some great physical comedy, like when he's carrying everything and he walks out onto the ledge, um, on the roof. Uh, I thought that was really great physical comedy. It was some very smart lines, like, you know, the scene you just talked about, about with Napoli, when he's saying, I have ways to, for you to tower over him when he's sitting down and he's going to walk across the entire hall. Like, that's actually really thought out, right? And it's stuff that I think that, you know, dictators would would do. I, I love that he made, he found ways to make fun of all of those things, right? Um, from, even in the argument when he's talking about, you know, you move your troops and then I'll sign. Okay, you sign and then I'll move my troops. And then they just go back and forth and in there and they start fighting and arguing. And then and then the guy says, "Just sign it. He'll move his troops and then we'll invade." Like, what do you what's the what's the problem? And and the the train stopping when Napolini comes into the train station and then keeps going and it like keeps moving. <laughs> it, you know, it just all of these you find these moments and like, okay, how can we make that off the wall, you know, like weird thing stupid thing that that might happen or or probably would never happen but but it's just going to be funny in this moment i think my favorite physical gag was when hinkle literally climbs a curtain oh like, yeah why? And actually <laughs> uh, yeah why exactly and i remember when i was watching that i was thinking how did they do that practically you know this is 1940 this is not there's no you know he, there's something back there that he's holding on to or whatever that's lifting him up or raising him, lowering him down. I would think so. I, I, I had that same thought because it's so seamless and his physical, you know, demeanor makes it look like he's really scaling this curtain, uh, which would clearly fall. And my, my best guess is there's a rope with the, like a little noose at the end of it that maybe he steps into yeah. that pulls him up. Yeah. Um, that's so good. he has to physically, whatever it is, hold on to something. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's probably the the cheapest way you could get away with that yeah. by my estimation. Yeah, no, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense. So, um, and, you know, remembering the time when this was made, you know, with the world war two going on and, and it just is a, I, it, at first I was really worried. I was watching it thinking, Oh my gosh, this is, 
not yeah. going to be. But but once it got past that first opening like war scene, I was I was much more in when when we had actual characters that I knew we were going to stay with when um, more you know, things started happening. I was so, yeah. So after the first, maybe 20 minutes or so, I was, I was pretty into it. It's a long movie. It's over two hours long and it's every bit of that. Right. So the credits are at the beginning. There's no credits at the end. So I I remember watching it thinking, how much is left here? And there was like 30 seconds left and they were, he was still talking and I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) Uh, So um, it was interesting, but the way they use music, they use music for transitions, not to mm. give you, not usually to give you any kind of feeling during a, during a scene, which was interesting because a lot of times there was just silence, I, especially at the very beginning, like when the, when the, the bullet falls out of the cannon and it's just laying there and he's told to go up to it and it's turning and pointing at him um, as he's running around, there's zero sound. And this is one of the scenes that you see. And I'm sitting here thinking, what is going to happen for the next hour and 50 minutes? Because there's like zero sound. And I have I just haven't been in a situation where I've been watching a film with zero sound. So, um, but, you know, obviously that changed as a film going on. So it, to me, just as a, as a film watcher, it felt a little disjointed at times because Mm -hmm. of that because at the end the speech at the end completely puts the film into a whole nother category uh like changes everything and it doesn't let me sit there long enough right so there's the speech and then she's he's calling to her and she's looking up at the sky and then it ends like we never sit in a world where there's this much drama that long throughout the entire movie like you said, there's these microbursts of drama, 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 but it's always counteracted by comedy. So it's like the opposite of what a drama would be, where you have these microbursts of comedy and then, you know, mostly drama. But then so but if you put yourself in that position where you have a drama and then there's microbursts of comedy, imagine having three and a half minutes, four minutes of comedy at the end. And that's how it ends. Like it feels whoa, like that's not what I signed up for. So I'm glad it was made and I'm glad he did what he did and he kept the speech in. But I just wish it would have been a little bit more dramatic throughout, I guess is what I'd say. Hmm. No, that's fair. I think um, there's so much uh, to talk about in this film. Like for one, I was laughing like out loud. Um, I didn't expect that. I expected kind of like what you were talking about with the, the hot mustard scene. Where it's like, okay, I get it. He's he's doing the whole tramp bit, and that's fine. Uh, but there's so many other moments where I, it, I was just really rolling. Some of it was for the physical comedy, and I was like, this guy is just a genius, like an actual genius. Um, and some of it was just witty, like um, that. It a lot of the contrast is where you know so much of the comedy comes from because we open in the middle of a war, right? World War One. It opens in 1918, and I love even the even before we get to that, they have the the, the on screen text, uh, you know, the scroll, um, and even that's pretty funny. Oh, let me see if I can pull it up real quick because it's just kind of uh, uh, being silly on itself. Obviously, like note any resemblance between Hinkle, the dictator, and the Jewish barber is purely coincidental, uh, which <laughs> obviously not, but 
the next one is what kind of got me a little bit because of its, I don't know, we're, we're talking about war and I'm sure tensions were high in this era. Um, and what he, what he says next is, this is a story of a period between two world wars, an interim in which insanity cut loose, liberty took a nosedive, and humanity was kicked around somewhat. <laughs> like, like just the whole at the final button being somewhat eh, like eh, war happens, people, you know, somewhat. Uh, so it's already adding levity to a really serious, you know, uh, topic for sure. But then it opens in like the trenches and barbed wires everywhere. And um, as we pan over, men are firing guns and uh, these shirtless men are now loading this massive cannon. And as they finished loading the cannon, we pan back to where we just were. And it was empty, but now it's uh, Chaplin. <laughs> it's just already like hilarious because he's such a you know sore thumb. Uh, we're just like, whoa! I did not expect to see you there, sir. Um, and the way he like even pulls the cable to fire the first round has got this kind of uh, uh, you know flamboyant flourish to it, and it's just like mm, ah, and then bang, uh, and it's just so physically funny, and it keeps playing with some of that tonal contrast uh after we cut away from the war as you said like he comes to uh whatever era this is you know the mid to late 30s and he's got amnesia we established that with this awkward you know interim sequence between the this doctor looking for him um and he's like yeah he's got amnesia he's been out of it since the war since 1918 and so he doesn't know what's going on now He's he's in for a surprise. Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> like it's just all exposition. So that when we cut to him, we understand that as you said, he has no idea that the times have changed and he's thinking these cops are supposed to be just good cops. Um he thinks he still equals with the Tamanians and he has no idea why people are writing Jew on his window. And I love that he goes and like, "Oh, well, who did this? Time to clean it up." <laughs> you know, he's just completely uh innocent. Um, as anyone should be, you know, and walking through life. And we see that scene escalate to him about to get hanged off a streetlight. And what happens is his old buddy, the, the, the pilot comes out of nowhere and sees him. And he's like, Whoa, I know this guy. He's a friend of mine. Um, and he's like, you're a Jew. I always thought you were Aryan. He's like, well, I'm, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> so good. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so good. And then he's like, you don't, you don't remember you saved my life and the slow dawn of realization creeps over his face as as he says oh yes i remember now well how are you <laughs> like it just goes into this immediate comedy punch and it's such brilliant timing because that's all you know comedy is a lot of the time is just timing as the old joke goes and those moments just caught me off guard um, the other thing is this was released in 1940. Uh, I saw one commenter say that he started working on this in 1937. Uh, I didn't find exactly when he began working on it, but that tracks like if this came out in 40, you're probably starting it, you know, in 37, maybe you finish writing it in 38. Uh, you got to build all these sets and figure out all your casting wardrobe, uh, locations. Like that's a lot of time so that you're filming in 1939 and then editing and some of these edits are really smooth actually whenever you think about like uh, the the final speech we dissolve in the middle of his speech to see uh hannah in the field you know just trying to recover 
that dissolve isn't as easy as it is now. You can't just, you know, shift D yeah. and, and suddenly these two clips are, you know, dissolving between each other. Like that's a physical chemical process they had to do. And so when you see there's a little jump that happens uh, right before the dissolve and it's because they have to, you know, safely make sure we can erase and literally wipe away some of the image a little bit at a time so that over the course of whatever you know, 20 frames, you can gradually erase the image off the celluloid so that it transitions. And, you know, that's, that's a chemical process. Uh, it takes time to get it right. Uh, and it's really cool that they were doing that in 1940. Is that how they uh, did that's, that? That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really tricky stuff. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, a lot of visual effects back in the day were like that in terms of, you know, some, some other films would, whatever been her or uh moses great 10 commandment thing like you're drawing on the film like you would have to literally draw onto the film itself in order to do your visual effects and that takes a lot of thought and foresight and precision for sure and so if things look always look a little imperfect that's why because it's a literal organic imperfect process yeah and so that he was thinking about this stuff in the you know as early as maybe 37 shows that he was way ahead like that speech even thinking about 1940 forget okay fine you know he was on the right side of history with hitler and jews um and even in america like that was a, I'm, I'm assuming it sounds like you know contentious but we're nowhere near the end of jim crow and he's talking about treating black people as equals um and doing whatever you can like <laughs> I'm sure he's got skeletons in the closet, like almost everyone else in history, but my God, he was really ahead of the curve, you know, to almost everyone in his contemporary. Cause it's not like he's Jewish. He didn't have a stake in the mm -hmm. game. There's no reason he had, you know, a personal, you know, uh, assignment to make sure he came out. Okay. Uh, no, he just really said, I just have a conscience and this is the way I see the world. And this is the way, I, I have to step up and say something. Um, and of course, within a couple of years, everyone was, of course, like, screw Hitler. And let alone all the crazy Nazi rallies that were happening around the country. Um, you know, there's that famous, I think now it's famous, uh, 1939 Times Square Nazi rally that happened uh, that was caught on film and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and yeah, so just the fact that also... We once again, you know, had an era where a, a, an actor could write and direct and, you know, distribute his film. Distributing, I think, was its own challenge. Like people in 1940 were thinking, this is never going to play in London. This is not going to play in America. Like no one's going to stand for this uh, kind of messaging. And because there were still a lot of sympathetic people to Hitler. And yeah. And there's even nods that they knew what was going on. There's that whole sequence of the, uh, of whoever it was, his, his buddy, the, the scientist creating like the worst invention oh, yeah. ever, right? The, the bulletproof silk and he just kills a guy, you know, the, the, the parachute hat. And they once again, kills oh a guy. Um, and then at this point, Hinkle's like done with them. And he comes back and he's like, we got this gas, man. It can kill lots of people. He's like, yeah, 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 go away. And it's like, well, it seems like we knew, right? And so uh, I think a lot of the stuff we see in contemporary times paints 
like what was happening over in World War uh, in Germany um, as you know a surprise when we got over there and maybe not maybe not I don't know um, I'm sure people like Joe Howes would have much more detailed information about what we knew and when we knew it and how public it was but um, yeah there's a lot to indicate that we knew exactly what was going on over there um, and so yeah I have a world of respect for for Chaplin not just because you know he's got a great conscience he's all to stand to put his money on the line and his reputation um and that's the cool thing too is he did it and maybe it was just impossible for him to not get away with it but he doesn't know that like you have all the goodwill because you're arguably the largest uh, movie star in the world i don't know who else would be your competition i don't know if the the marx brothers are doing their thing yet or not but i imagine there's no bigger name in the world than charlie chaplin um and for him to be like I'll risk it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my money, my reputation. Let's go. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. No fear. None. Dude, that's so cool. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll circle back to that later. Uh, but I also looked at that. I think it's funny that we were doing the whole, um, we as a society, uh, we're doing the whole glow up uh, even back in the 40s, right? This is the she's all that level of of storytelling right let's turn hannah who's clearly gorgeous and pretend she's not right let's put oil on her face and oh her hair's up in a bun oh we we washed her face and put her hair down and now she's like smoking hot mm-hmm. all of a sudden to everyone like that's so funny um and i i just found like revision not revisionist but like this historical look back at you know just the way you go for the easy low hanging fruit in storytelling sometimes. And I don't begrudge Chaplin that for sure, for sure. Uh, a little harder to get away with that nowadays. If someone does that now, you better be as a punchline, um, not as some kind of serious effort to, <laughs> to make, you know, whatever Chris Evans look like. the dork. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> suddenly, I mean, in 1940, I'm sure like you just, you think, Oh, let's just put her hair up and make it messy. And then some smudges on her face and, that's good. Yeah. You're good. Like, and the extra flourish that they did I, that I love is they also did this kind of dreamy, hazy uh, visual lens, mm-hmm. right? The the highlights are blooming, and I don't know exactly how they would have done that in forty. Um, probably a couple of ways. I don't know what petroleum jelly on the lens looks like. I know that was a technique back then, um, but I would think the easiest way is probably to remove. In film, you have what's called an anti-halation backing or layer, uh, and which the goal of which is when light passes through the film, you don't want it to hit the back of the camera and then ricochet right back through it. Um, that starts to distort your image. Instead, you want the, the light to hit the film once and stop. And so you have like a backing at the very back that stops the light. Um, and you'll also add maybe an extra layer of uh, anti-halation to just make sure that the highlights stay preserved as they are. Whereas if you remove that layer, the backing, what ends up happening is the highlights bloom and it creates this kind of glow around all the highlights. Um, and that's a nice storytelling technique. What should be a, a, a fault in the, in the process now becomes an opportunity to tell your story. Uh, well, okay, maybe we don't want that all the time, but what if we do it at a specific time? Well, suddenly it's got this heavenly look. And so maybe you can do the afterlife, right? With this glowy, hazy kind of texture to the film. Or 
this uh, girl in overalls and uh, coveralls suddenly, you know, looks beautiful because she's whatever in a dress and has her hair done and face clean. And now let's let's give her this glow, right? This this you know beautiful kind of uh, halo effect all over uh, the place. And now suddenly, you know, str- strum the harp. <laughs> you know, let's go. Uh, yeah. And so little simple things. People can still do that with film. I think uh, depending on the film stock you're using. Not a lot of people do it. I mean, it's. I think it's uh, probably something that you must really want to do. Um, uh, it almost comes across as pretentious to do it now because you can do similar stuff in post. Um, there's just not a lot of reason to do it. Now, if you're a purist like Christopher Nolan, I respect it. Do your thing. I think he still does uh, his coloring process through chemical baths, um, which before digital age, uh, that's what you used to do. You used to run it through, if you wanted it to have a sepia look, uh, you might just run it through brown uh, color wash a few times to give it a more brown texture. Um, and so the whole color timing was a literal timing, um, how long you left it exposed in the, the chemicals. Um, and then you try to match shots based on you know the exposure time. All kinds of mathematical things were happening to make sure your film looked artistically the way you wanted it to look. Um, and so back in the day, you know, that was the norm and now not so much except for probably one filmmaker in the world, Christopher Nolan. I've, I've not heard, maybe that's just because I just haven't heard, but I haven't heard anyone else still doing chemical baths. Uh, and so it's kind of cool to still see modern films released, uh, with that process in mind. Uh, yeah. Dupe. There was one moment. I know that end, the, the final speech is just a, a beautiful and punch in the stomach and all, all the things. There is one other moment that really took my breath out, um, which was it wasn't when everyone was being cruel, like they're throwing tomatoes at her and she's, you know, cowering down. That's brutal. It doesn't feel good. Don't get me wrong. But it's also a little bit of expected. Like you're like, OK, yeah, that's that's, you know, part and parcel with this kind of story. But the thing that really shocked me was when Hit Hinkle, <laughs> close, <laughs> yeah, almost, has is trying to negotiate with uh, Napoloni um, and his uh, Schultz, I think it is, right? Who says we need to remove the the restrictions on Jews and we need to give them equality again. And this is after the tomato incident and all, the, uh, and the cop incident. After um, they almost strung up the uh, the, the barber. Um, and then we go back to the ghetto and we see them walking down the street and everyone's being polite and she drops her potatoes and instead of taking them, they help her pick them up and her look, her reaction to it. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Oh, that one hits. I was like, man, I didn't expect that because you, you get into this mode of being treated a certain way. And as a viewer, I'm expected that to persist. Mm -hmm. And even after he re re whatever repeals or removes the, uh, the, the edicts about how to treat, you know, people in the ghetto, I still expect the men on the street to still think they're better than, than you. And like, okay, we have our, our, our orders, but we're going to treat you the way we think you should be treated anyway. And for my expectation there to be upset, was just a kick. I was like, whoa. And it really reveals and it's playing on what a grip the dictator had on his on his men. Um, and 
also the impact that it had on that community was really profound because even as things progress, we see right before um, the demonstration in the ghetto takes place, we can see the the people, you know, Hannah and the barber begin to change their minds too. They're like, you know, maybe Hinkle isn't so bad. Oh, we'll take two buttons, please. Right. Um, and you can start to see, and this is where destroying something beautiful really has a really great effect because we're starting to have something else wonderful crop up, which is love in the time of war. You have Hannah uh, and the barber, you know, falling in love and finding something special in this really terrible time. And they're going on a date. No, actually terrible, right? And everything, just, let's destroy this. And it's such a great storytelling mechanism to give you hope, to give you something wonderful. And it's, I think, a reflection of what uh, Schultz is saying right before he thinks he's going to die at the beginning of the film. As he talks about, he starts uh, waxing poetic about his wife at home. She's probably in the garden. Oh, and she can never pick those daisies. Because to her, cutting a daisy is like taking a life. Mm. Fast forward, taking lives. Like it's all just this beautiful interwoven, like beauty is beauty is beauty kind of uh, tone. Yeah, that that's a really wonderful technique of let's create hope and then snuff it out as much as we can. You know, before we, we give you something good, let's uh, actually remind you of what the the order of the day is yeah i just a lot of really smart storytelling techniques. yeah i was um, i was at first shocked when he said oh well let's just you know, like change how we treat them but then i i think that was also a, a funny like something that was kind of funny which is like you know it's kind of a really stupid random thing to think of to persecute them in the first place persecute jewish people in the first place so why wouldn't it be just as random to say, OK, well, let's not do that anymore. Right. Like, the, you know right. what I mean? Like, it, it's, it's just very yeah. uh, kind of a stupid assumption that anybody is less than you because of the color of their skin anyway. So it should be just as dumb a reason to stop doing that. And then I also expected like there to be backlash from the you know, the, the soldiers and stuff like, wait a minute. No, no, no. We, we mm. do hate these people, but there wasn't. And I, I think that that was probably, maybe it wasn't a conscious decision, but it was probably a conscious decision just because like of his speech at the end, don't just do what they say because they're machine. They turn, they take away your life. They turn you into machines, you know, don't be a machine, you know, don't just say, I hate Jewish people because I tell you that they're bad. Don't just say like, like just, don't just agree with me because I'm your, your, you're my subordinate, you know, you know, be a human being. And, but they're, he's calling that out because they're like, okay, now we'll help you pick up your, your potatoes and, you know, be nice to you because this, this, this higher up guy says that I should like, so he's just calling out that in a, in a way. So, but I didn't expect that. I expected there to be some kind of backlash, but there, there wasn't. I loved the the that moment of that you called out of them getting the buttons, buying the buttons, and then hearing Hinkle like basically change his mind in this awful speech. He's like, "Nah, I'm gonna give these back to you." There you go. <laughs> yeah, you know? and the probably what I thought was the best physical comedy for me was the scene where the shot right after that, where he's like he drops his hat and then he's going back to get it, and then the guy 
the one soldier comes up and he's going to attack him, but he slips through him and slides through that kind of window under oh, under him man. Uh, behind him. I, I was like, whoa, that was that's <laughs> gymnast type shit right there. It was awesome. Yeah, he's God and such a risk taker. Some of the, you know, his older stuff is just like, how did yeah. you not die like a dozen times? Uh, just incredible. I mean, and it's interesting. His his speech is also fascinating because he seems to be, on the one hand, kind of this anti, and it's a lot of nuance. He's obviously a very, very smart man, um, and so I don't want to simplify it. But if you were to simplify it, uh, it looks like he's anti-industrialist because if you factor in modern times being some kind of commentary about the industrial age and reducing men to cogs in the machine, right? Is literally what he's saying. Um, and then, you know, you combine that with what he's saying about machines. It sounds like he's being very literal. And I think to some degree, he might've been very literal. Uh, but at the same time, he's not anti-progress because he also says at the end of that, you know, let's use science, let's use progress uh, to for the betterment of all mankind um, so that, you know, we can provide for each other. Like it's... It's a really fantastic, nuanced worldview that, he, you know, that he's espousing. And I don't know that he and I would probably see eye to eye on everything. And that's fine. I don't need that out of anyone I, I'm in, you know, friendship with, let alone anyone, I, uh, art that I'm consuming. And so I respect that, you know, he's got a view. It takes a mind to see and think through what his view actually might be um, and still agree or disagree. Like there's still so much fundamentally uh, you can't disagree with like just basic equality, humanity and everyone. Uh, yeah, it's, it's God, he's so good. The other thing, God, if I can remember it, I didn't take any notes. I really wanted to vibe off of watching it the one time uh, because it was such a, you know, singular experience to actually sit and watch mm -hmm. a Chaplin film for the first time. And I, I mean, I just loved the hell out of it, but this being in 1940, um, the other thing that's interesting that we don't often think about in context of World War II is the propaganda aspect. Like film media play, it seems like if you were to do an actual historical analysis, thinking about the impact film made on the world, uh, it's probably much, much more significant than we usually think about it because this was, you know, Hitler did a, phenomenal job of using it to rile his people up um to promote you know bad intel right to make it seem like everything is going great for germany and uh there's a lot of documentaries that he was releasing at the time and we and it's just so funny because nowadays right even, we, even within the last couple of years even within the last couple of months like we constantly are aware of how media is being used against us um and we're thinking like, oh, whatever, misinformation is being put out, you know, about whatever uh, vaccines or, you know, the president or foreign leaders or whatever. Like it's constantly in our psyche that it's being misallocated in some way or another. Why wouldn't we also assume that was the case, you know, 80 years ago? Because I think we just look at Hitler as being this incredible orator and with an iron fist and don't really consider the tools at his disposal. And film was a really big one. That's 
more and more the conclusion that I'm, I've been coming to. Uh, and again, I'm not aware of any documentaries or uh, works, books or anything that have done a deep dive into the impact of the creation and distribution of film, the ease of access, right? Uh, we talk a lot about the democratization of media nowadays, right? With the digital revolution, but film getting on its first legs back then, massive deal, big, big, big deal. Um, and war photography was becoming a thing, right? Uh, uh, and documenting wars and proving to people like this is going on. This is what's happening in Germany. Like that was a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the use and the impact of, you know, Soviets and probably America too. I mean, you look at D.W. Griffith, who's a very contentious historical filmmaker um, because he's responsible for Birth of a Nation, which effectively revitalized uh, in crazy, you know, uh, impact on the KKK. It was basically just this fledgling thing until uh, Birth of a Nation came out. And it's honestly, it's not clear to me if he was a racist. It it could have been he was just making a really interesting, crazy film. I don't know. Again, uh, of course, it wouldn't surprise me uh, if someone like that made that movie is an actual racist and was happy to see the recurrent. But I don't know. My, my point isn't so much that I know exactly who was doing what and why. It's that I think it's worth analyzing um, and factoring in the impact that the tools of the time probably had into the world at large. World War II didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and what, you know, the impact once again, back to back, uh, and if anything, I, I wish I could invert this conversation versus last week's because the impact is so much bigger on this one. Uh, when you look at, you know, what, what transpired over the course of a decade, um, it's just, it shifted the entire world, the entire world, um, got upended in the course of, you know, 10 short years. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I think I punched myself out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 so important to keep in mind when this was made and also why. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I I think you know one of the one of the amazing things about Chaplin was just his his ability to see everyone as equal and and everyone as as deserving of the same opportunity as what he has, which is I think in a lot of ways, sorely lacking in, in, you know, I guess in a lot of places, but especially in like Hollywood and uh, today and like, like, you know, it's very hard um, to find artists who will make something because it needs to be made for the world rather than because they need to make it and to put their, you know, if they have a lot of money to put that where their, their mouth is the way that Chaplin did that here and also i think you know it says a lot about like why he did comedy in the first place like doesn't matter if you are rich or poor or or you know uh, old or young you can watch chaplin and laugh and so he he's like trying to give the world something you know it, i just felt like that's what this was 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 through it was also like a yes there's bad things happening but we're going to we're going to find a way to make it uh, uh, something that that everyone can laugh at um in a place in a time when it's really hard to laugh at anything um mm -hmm. and to also make hitler seem small and to like uh, literally attack the you know the regime 
and um, and the ideology of of that. And I think that it was done very directly and fearlessly. And like you said, calling calling out that this terrible stuff is happening, but at the same time, giving the world something to smile at. It just was kind of like. I don't know. It's like so brilliant in a time in, in the forties. You also have to remember like it, you know, there was no wokeness. There was no, you know, like everybody has a voice, you know, it was like illegal to be gay. And, you know, like it, it was such a different time to be a woman and like all of these, all of these things that we are not the same now. And, and so to, and, and, she, and to make like Hannah so powerful, like she was, such a powerful character in this in this film a powerful woman in this film and yes you know she had a role of like cleaning and and cooking and stuff but she was active in this film like she was like i'm not going to stand by and just cook you know i'm i'm going to participate in this i'm going to save the man the almost helpless hopeless yeah. man and she does and um i think that just says a lot about you know his his just worldview and his attempt to give something to the world to leave it better than how he found it. I loved your comment you made a second ago about attacking Hitler. What a great idea. Humor as a weapon. Like mm. that's that's layered thinking, you know, that we just don't get a lot of because it's so much easier to puff your chest out and say, you know, fight me. It's really hard to win. Um, against someone who's just making a joke, <laughs> like yeah, uh, it's uh, that's a bullet that's you know you can't deflect. It it just tacks you on a on a whole different plane of existence, and that's just genius because that was his weapon of choice. Um, and of course, he buys ink by the barrel, right? Because he's a writer, he's a comedian, and he can do this all day. Um, and I think he wanted to hear what Hitler thought of his film. And he never found out, but there is someone who said that Hitler watched it twice and, but he, he never released a, a thought or opinion mm. um, on it. And yeah, I, that's so good because humor is, it's universal. And you know what? That's the other interesting thing about film in this era is talkies came through, right? Sound sync, um, the ability to record audio and sound at the same time contributed to the aspect ratio. So we look at, you know, this being the the Academy aspect and it's this weird, you know, fraction of a, of a thing because initially it was wider as a four, three aspect ratio um, originally. And then as they got sound onto the, the film strip, uh, it meant you had to squeeze the image over to make space for the sound. And then whenever you did that, it made the image taller. And so they kind of just truncated the image a little bit to make it slightly more four, three ish, even though it's not exactly, uh, and that gave birth to this aspect ratio, but before sound, um, was, was the mainstay like, and, and so up until maybe the sixties, like all films are in this Academy aspect ratio, this kind of more squarish ratio. Uh, but it's interesting because the, the first sound sync film that made everyone say, Oh my God, like sound is cool. Uh, was it's called the jazz singer came out in 1927 and so it had been floating around before they figured out like a process to really you know get this all to work in harmony and it's it's a challenge because um if you've seen like babylon you can kind of see the the the, the challenge of making sure 
your recording sound well. Uh, and so the sound also has to be choreographed. Like if the, if your, if your back is to the camera, the audio isn't going to capture you. And so it becomes not just, you know, cinematography is really important, but also how you block your actor so that whoever's talking is getting the best angle at the cam at the microphone. Um, like that's a whole other animal of, uh, you know, figuring out how to make a good movie. Uh, wow. It's, yeah. it's intense, man, but really cool. Nonetheless, that, you know, that was a, the, a technical process married with the artistic process. Um, and so it, yeah. it doesn't surprise me that someone like Chaplin is coming and thinking about how, how can I elevate my craft in a way that is telling my story, telling my, my perspective while winning over my audience who is probably 50 50 on my views in the first place and do it in a way that uh doesn't lose the thread and still makes this an enjoyable like he is balancing a globe on his butt like it's just mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really impressive which yeah also really tickled me because i was like i really hope he bounces it off his ass <laughs> and he does it twice <laughs> he does it twice <laughs> so great so great oh what and, a and what a what what a uh, a metaphor right i mean it's 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 perfect and then it pops and he's so sad it's just so any cry you know he's like on the desk uh, like a child <laughs> it's so it's so on the nose and brilliant and other films have done it since i mean i think what like jojo rabbit did something like that mm -hmm. and like a couple other films and i noticed that it, it kind of felt like listening to the beatles for the first time where you know you're like oh that's where that came from. Yes. Oh, that's where that came from. The oh. whole uh, dictation bit where he's yes. talking to the secretary and he's like, Robin Stockham, 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 tick, tick. <laughs> and then he yeah. says, and then, Harvard Hobby. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> it's so like, oh my, there were so many things, even the short chair bit, you know, oh, like there's great. like, there's so many things about it where I thought, oh, that, that must've been the first time this is done. Oh, that, that was done 50 years before I saw it. You know, it just felt like, yeah, it felt like listening to the Beatles for the first time um, and hearing, you know, like Sergeant Pepper. And, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is a heavy metal. This is rock and roll. This is country. This is all of these genres first. This is unbelievable. This blues, like, and it's, yeah, that's what it felt like. It was like really uh, wonderful. You know, at first I was very hesitant but then as it got into it, I, I was like, you know, frustrated at my children for being loud. Like, guys, I'm trying to watch this, you know. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it was, it was great. It yeah, was great. I loved it. I'm, I'm glad we did it. Um, it's one of those where I can imagine watching it again at some point. Definitely want to show it to, you know, a person here or there and maybe even just reference it. Honestly, uh, the mm -hmm. physical comedy is so smart and light handed uh, and it's it's so hard to make it look that easy. That's the hardest thing is watching him do some of these bits and it looks simple. It looks effortless instead of dangerous. Like I don't know if he had a safety net below him on that uh that that little plank, little metal mm. beam, but I'm like this dude is playing with fire right now. That's <laughs> dicey. Well, they so he's done other things like that in other films and they it's it's actually it's like not real like there's mm -hmm. you know 
I've he's seen safe. The, I've seen another floor bit where yeah. it looks like he's, but it's just a, a like a matte painting sitting in front of the camera kind of thing. It's a perspective kind of thing. Yeah, forced perspective. Right? Forced perspective. Yeah. I don't know if they did that on this, but. Yeah, but the there's there's some of those stunts where I'm like, I don't think you can do this any other way than practically like trains totally. playing on, you know, in front of trains and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And is he, I don't know if it's him or it might be Buster Keaton that does the whole house falling down around him on bit like, Oh, that's no, terrifying. I think it's him. I think uh, it's him. Right. Uh, let me Google real or quick. he has to stand on this certain place and then the, yes. the window falls around him. Yes. So, okay. I've no, that's that. Buster Keaton, but, Oh, okay. But that's his, like his, his team, right? Like that's all of them, bro. <laughs> oh my God. It'll kill you, man. That's Talk about crazy. trust. That's insane. Um, oh, uh, yeah, no. Un- unbelievable and and also a lot of times like in films today we would just use edits and cutaways and stuff th- to make it look more dramatic yeah but there's almost no edits when he does his physical comedy and they're wides so you're watching his entire body doing these things where he's you know he's hitting someone he's running he's falling you know um he's you know throwing himself through a, a window he's you know uh, I mean, he's really hitting people too. That's the other thing. Like, you know, when he, when he, yeah. So it's unreal. Like what they, what they did back then. Yeah. And I wonder if they even had long lenses uh, to some extent, just because you need, I mean, the precision is really difficult, uh, but you also need so much light to expose the film that the longer you make your lens, the harder it is, you know, to to mm. let a bunch of light get in without having incredible optics. Uh, and I just imagine, you know, that kind of optical precision was challenging uh, at a minimum. Yeah. Um, but God, yeah. yeah, genius. I loved it. I'm really glad we watched it. Um, Same. I, I feel like I would struggle to watch like modern times because that's a, a pure silent film. I think there's a little nonsensical dialogue sprinkled in here and there, but I don't know if I could last uh, an entire, unless maybe if, if I saw it like at the draft house and they had like an organ player, I could probably last through it. There. <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. That would be cool. That'd be cool. Um, yeah. yeah. I would love to see Prince Ahmed. I think it's called Ahmed. That's the first animation and it's uh, uh oh. yeah. And it, it, you're supposed to watch it with an organ player in the room. And I think sometimes draft house does it, but I haven't seen it lately. And so I've always okay. wanted to go to that, but yeah glad we did this man um i freaking loved it there were very few moments where i uh wasn't into it uh and it might just be the same exact moment that you described the the hot mustard i was like all right we get it guys (laughs) yeah uh, it's mustard flailing around yeah other than that i mean i was 95 percent into it and I i loved it and i don't care that the speech was was uh you know out of place at the end it was necessary and and you know what if you're making if you're making something like this because you feel like the world needs it, you get you sure have a voice at the end. Say whatever the hell you want. You know what I mean? Like and I think that films were I mean, dude, they used to show commercials. I mean, they still show commercials before films now in, in most theaters, but they used to show like like news before movies back then. Like movies were were meant to disperse information. also back then and not just for entertainment so keeping that in mind using the end of a a two-hour film to also disperse information that you need to know you know because this is this is 
trash. Like this idea is garbage. And by the way, you are a human being and you deserve more. Why not? You know, anyway. Yeah, I loved it. I, I thought it was brilliant and and wonderful to watch. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what are you going to recommend this week? I'm going to recommend and it. I'm not, not going to say anything. Just going to recommend RRR. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. OK, I see you. Just see ya. just go watch it. it <laughs> I work with a lot of Indian India folks, folks that live in India, folks that are from India, and they're all amazed that it's such a world like it's gone around the world, you know, whatever. But I also watched a lot of like behind the scenes VFX stuff. There's like 2,600 VFX shots in this film. I just love how how it just it is what it is, and it has no desire to explain itself or to like try to be you know perfect in any way. It just is this awesome story. I I adored it. It's long. It's very long. <laughs> uh, I hope it's like five hours. That's three the- hours. Whoa! I yeah. was so exaggerating. Oh my god! <laughs> three hours. <laughs> okay. Well, but you, dude, you will love it. Some of the scenes I would. One of the first action scenes, I was not the first, but one of the first, I was like, I like jumped up into the air, just was so excited. I couldn't believe that this thing, it's, you haven't watched it yet? Go watch it. Okay. That's you you and Scott both saying that. So exactly. And Scott (laughs) reminded me about it again. And then I saw they did a performance of this dance on the Oscars and I was like, oh yeah, I got to go watch that. It's worth the three hours. Holy crap. I will say. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to recommend a book you bought me for my birthday a couple of years ago when I was in San Francisco. It's called A Chronology of Film. This is why we did The Great Dictator. Um, it just kind of popped it back into my mind. I was like, you know what? Okay, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it talks about, you know, this being his first uh, talkie and how he, you know, debated and used his fame or whatever to... It's dicey transitioning into a completely new style because what if people don't like your voice? Like that was a real thing. A lot of actors lost their heads because uh, their voice didn't sound good on camera. Um, And so, yeah, it's a really cool book. Um, It's both got some nice flourishing details while also mostly staying pretty high level so that you can breeze through it. Lots of picture references and it's useful. Like, you, I don't think you would want to write a report based off this thing, but you would at the same time be able to read through it and have a really good like fundamental knowledge of uh, the history of Hollywood and filmmaking across the world, not just America. Talks a lot about Japan, Kurosawa. Um, I haven't gotten to uh, the... I don't know if I've gotten to the French New Wave yet, um, but I'm sure I will. I, I hope you know he's got some Wong Kar Wai in there. I expect to get to Hong Kong at some point, hopefully Korea. I mean, it's got Parasite on the cover, so you better get to Korea, uh, South Korea specifically. I don't know if North Korea has a, a, a robust film community. Um, I doubt it. They yeah, don't even have internet. Maybe not. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love it. I, I think it's a wonderful book. It's nice to just kind of make my way through. I don't feel like a pressure to keep everything in my head because each chapter is its own kind of thing. And it's going like year by year starting way back so that it kind of points out a couple of significant things that develop in every single year over the last whatever century. Wow. So yeah, it's pretty dope, man. Thank you. It's a, it's a good read. I dig it. You're welcome. Thanks. Awesome. Good to hear Uh, a little art spotlight. 
is going to us actually um releasing yes, we made it this day a trailer for uh the short film we made when todd was in town it's about a busker it's called i won't let me down yeah so you can go to the show notes if you're like what do you ever make uh well this is it and so it's inspired by once um and if you've seen once you'll instantly get you know what we're going for and so yeah i like i'm i'm more and more as i've probably talked about a couple of times on the show in the recent times like more and more just loving kind of kicking against the grain uh when it comes to modern filmmaking style and technique uh i like rubbing against the grain yeah like i don't necessarily want to make something uh that looks like david fincher or christopher nolan like First, I don't have the budget, so uh, I don't even want to dance into that region unless I do. Um, and if I don't, I want to maximize my strengths instead of, you know, trying to pretend I they're not my my weaknesses. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this style. I have other ideas that, you know, hopefully in the coming weeks or months, I can, you know, loop back around and start working on new stuff. Yeah, especially as uh, I wrap up some other projects and... Uh, replenish the old uh, 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 pocketbook. Um, yeah, there you so, go. A lot of good- I really enjoyed making that with you, man. Uh, it was a lot of fun. You did a great job directing and filming uh, and producing. And, <laughs> you did and running all. audio for a couple of days. And, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, and also, our our good friend Sergio ran God, audio for a couple huge, of days there. At least huge. one. Yeah, two um, two days. Did he mix it too? Uh, he did the mix. Yeah. Awesome. Crushed it. Yeah. And, uh, it was just, it was just fun to be on the receiving end of direction from you, Yeah, you know, which is, you know, it's an interesting place to be because it's your project, you know, your gear, your time, your money, you know? And, and so like, I definitely wanted to bring something to it and, and the other actors did too. And, but to to allow myself to be directed by you wholly, but also to be able to put my print on what I thought, you know, would work. Uh, I, th- I thought it worked really well. And I, I'm like, it's a very in, uh, endearing little short film that I watch it and I can watch it as not as like the actor, as as just a, a, a watcher, a viewer. And it it's like, oh, that's that's lovely. You know, it so. is. And I adore films with small goals and so i've always been really hesitant to make a film with a small intimate goal like this and so i was really pleased that Mm -hmm. it came out uh the way that i wanted like yeah uh, yeah. and so it was fun working with you too man i i'm hoping like it's funny I, i met with scott earlier we're working on a music video together um and I was like, man, I'm trying to figure out what to do for my first feature now that I've kind of shelved my my script. Uh, and I'm like, man, you just made an album. I wonder if there's a way to use that as the a starting point for some other project. Like being in the studio is interesting. So I'm I'm interested to kind of capture the the same vibe that we did on I Won't Let Me Down, where it's just kind of uh, loose, um, but still heading in a specific direction uh, and incorporate whether that's, you know, you know, seeing if you want to use your music for a film um, or using just the idea of being in a studio uh, and, and pulling in other people. I don't know. I've got all kinds of crazy ideas bouncing around my head and I could easily end up whatever, making a 
film about a logger in uh you know ohio or something <laughs> like it could, logging in ohio <laughs> yeah not that there's a lot of logging going on in ohio but uh like anything all right now i'm just kind of grasping at any straw that i can find that i can make for whatever five or ten grand uh yeah yeah and so i think we'll have some fun regardless of where we end up um but yeah if you want to check out the trailer and see what we're up to uh we'll have another trailer next week as well so um yeah stay tuned for all that bit of fun um and stay tuned for next week we are going to take a look at you good at this okay uh we're gonna take a look at the dark knight um if you've never heard of it it's uh it's a batman movie <laughs> by christopher nolan <laughs> yeah he's gearing up another film this year and so uh, i can't quite wait and so let's uh let's look at one of his other films that we haven't covered yet and we're running low on nolan films we've run out of aronofsky films um i think well no we there's someone else we just ran out. oh denny we ran out of denny films mm, denny um, films yeah. yeah dang it uh and so yeah we, we might have to start digging up some other filmmakers that we haven't uh put under the microscope yet i mean we haven't even looked at wes anderson so maybe we can find oh, one of his yeah life aquatic oh nice. let's get into that life aquatic rushmore those are my uh-huh. uh my, uh my two grades yeah i was in rushmore that's right We'll, we'll just wait. Oh, I'll yeah. tell that story. It's not really a story. We've done it all. If you're enjoying yeah. the show, don't forget to subscribe, drop us a review. If you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash the great dictator. You have to roll, you have to roll the R when you type it in. That's right. Great. Yeah. Yep. And our quote of the day is from Charlie Chaplin. This is an incredible Quote, the deeper the truth in a creative work, the longer it will live. Hence this film. Hence this film. Everything. That's the one thing that I think does make the speech at the end, like, makes it okay. Is that the, all the satire throughout the entire film is real. As in, like, it's such a joke, you know, that you're looking at Jewish people like this. It's such a joke that you're, you know, like our, the way that we, the reasons we fight about things and, and it's such a, this isn't that it's, it's such a joke. Right. And it's just calling it a joke, you know, like that in, in every way, shape and form, the, he's going to sit beneath you. He's going to walk across. We're going to eat mustard. Like it just is, you know, pointless and it's just such a joke and he calls it out and it is it is a truth and we identify with it as a truth 80 years later and now and 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 then the speech at the end obviously we identify with that uh so yeah what a great great quote there Um, we could talk about this all day i think but thank you guys so much for joining us it's just a lot of fun great suggestion to do this uh make sure to join us next week we're doing the dark night and subscribe review us wherever you can uh it all helps and if there's a film you'd like to see us um dissect we would love to hear from you as well let us know what you think about this episode and uh um i just i hope that we can take from this what's important and um look look at it in the way that that uh strengthens films because i i just really think that this is the start of something else right like this is a i'm going to use this medium as a way to make a statement and i just loved it uh yeah until next week i'm todd i'm wes go watch the movies